chapter 7 this morning. Acts chapter 7 is a, a very, um, not difficult passage, but it's, there's, there's so much to it. Um, as we've been reading through and we've been studying it last week, I want to point out that if it's an overwhelming chapter, it should be for us. Unless you've read the, New Te- or the Old Testament like six or seven times, even then it's still overwhelming because the things that Stephen is sharing with his audience, the religious leaders, to them it's all common knowledge. So he doesn't spend a whole lot of time getting in depth on each passage that he's referencing from the Old Testament. He just kind of shares it as if it's common knowledge. Now to you and I, who are not Jewish, nor do we have the old, you know, the, the old traditions that we still follow that help us to remember the stories of the Old Testament, we have to do a little bit more in-depth study to kind of, re- not, we can't remember, but we can look back and, and study in the Old Testament the things he's referring to as if we should just know them. And so we've spent a little bit more time than probably Stephen did. Stephen was accused by the religious leaders. He, they were tired of hearing him proclaim the name of Jesus because they had already had Jesus put to death. Remember that the, the religious leaders that were putting Stephen to trial were the same, many believe. Was the high priest was Caiaphas, which was the same high priest during the time of Jesus. And so he was in charge of things when Jesus was put to trial and put to death, in our minds, wrongfully, because uh, he was blameless in all his ways. So as you turn to Acts chapter 7 this morning, I want you to remember, if you turn one page to the left, depending on how big the print is in your Bible, in Acts chapter 6, verse 11 and 13, we must remember what Stephen is being charged with. It says that Stephen was full of faith in verse 8 of chapter 6, and power, and did great wonders and signs among the people. So as he proclaimed the name of Jesus, as he did what he was called to do, serve in tables, he was a table waiter, uh, he got lots of opportunities to share his faith in Jesus. And as he did that, God used him to do miraculous signs and wonders. And as he did that, uh, there was this group that got a little aggravated with him, and they didn't want him to be doing what he was doing because he was doing this all in the name of Jesus, and they were not favorable. They did not like Jesus. They had put him to death because they wanted to quiet him. And when they put him to death, the testimony and the, the, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus kept going. And so they were going to try and put out all these little fires that his fire had started. They were going to try and stop the word of God the, from the, uh, the person of Jesus from going out. And so in verse 11, it says there, that these men who were against Stephen, they secretly induced men to say that they had heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So that's one of the charges. And then they also set up false witnesses who said, this man, verse 13, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So their charge against him is that he's speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God and against the holy place, which we know as the temple that was there in Jerusalem, and the law. So before we know what the charges are, I, I didn't even think about it, but who knows what the word blasphemous means? I mean, we kind of have an idea that it means like it's not good to blaspheme. But So I looked up the word because I couldn't, I don't even know if I could have defined it for you last week. So we need to define words so we know what it means. Blasphemous is a word used to describe irreverence towards a certain religion or things that are regarded as holy. This implied that they considered God, Moses, the temple, and the law to be holy. 
Now, what do we know about Moses? Was he holy? No, we can know that he was a murderer at one point in his life. So if he was holy at all, the only reason he was holy was because God had used him. God cleansed him. God used him to provide the law. God sent him to the wilderness for a time and then brought him back. So Moses is a good guy and he was used by God, but the only thing holy about him was that God used him. And then the temple we're going to look at today. Was there anything holy about the temple? It was just a building. But who dwelled in the temple is what made it holy. The Holy Spirit, the God himself. And so God made himself to be known in the temple as a place where people go, could go and worship and offer sacrifices. So the only thing holy about the temple was that God dwelled there. And then the law. Was the law holy? Well, yes, because it was the word of God, but it was provided by God. The source is the Holy One, the Lord. And so as we see that, it's important that we always recognize that the things that God gives us, we've got to be careful not to worship them over God. Whether it's the law, whether it's a building, or whether it's somebody that God has used to speak into our lives. There's nothing holy about you and I as people except that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and cleansed us from our unrighteousness and that he's doing that daily. He makes us holy. He washes us in the water of his word. And as we dwell and as we study his word, he cleanses us. I don't quite understand it, but I know that if we spend time reading his word, somehow he uses it to purge the sin out of our lives by letting us know, hey, this is a little area you need to work on. As we walk close to the light, it reveals the darkness that still resides in us. And then we have the opportunity at that point to repent and say, Lord, I confess to you, I'm not perfect and I need you. Please cleanse me. And so we see that as they've given him these charges, what we need to recognize before we go too much farther is that all these charges are false charges. Verse 11 says, they secretly induce men to say, in other words, they, they say, why don't you guys testify that Stephen did this? And then verse 13 says, they set up false witnesses. So as we look again at Stephen's defense, we got about maybe halfway through it last week. We need to remember that he's been charged and that the charges are false. So Stephen, when he gives his defense, we need to recognize that his defense is never about himself. If you get a chance this week, just read through this testimony over again and recognize that he never once mentions himself. He never once defends his own honor. Instead, what he does is he goes through the, God's dealings with the nation of Israel from the beginning from Abraham when he was a pagan, idol-worshiping man, and when he called him out of that nation and he decided he was going to start a people for his own name to get glory from. And so he recalls the faithfulness of God. He never once says, I didn't do that, or you can't say that about me. He doesn't even defend the Lord. He says, look, you can say all you want about me, but here's what I know about God and how he's dealt with us in the past. And so that's where we kind of start, where we kind of left off last week. So as we start this week, we're in Acts chapter 7, verse 17. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, um, but what we are going to do is come to the conclusion of Stephen's testimony here. So in verse 17, it says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. 
till another king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, if you remember last week, we had studied how God had told Abraham, I'm going to send your your descendants that you don't have yet because he hadn't even had one son yet. But God told him, I'm going to send your descendants into the nation of Egypt for a time. I'm going to use Egypt to be kind of a way to supply them grain because they are going to go through a famine. And when they go in there, they're going to live there long enough to the point where the king's going to change. There's going to be a new pharaoh. He's not going to know Joseph, who's going to be the one that gives you favor with them. And at that point, they're going to deal treacherously with our people. They're going to turn on them. So verse 19 says, This man, this pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. So there was this point where the nation of Egypt saw that the Hebrews that had moved into their land were having so many kids. Apparently they were pretty fertile. And they had so many kids that they were afraid that as they multiplied, that eventually these people, the Hebrews who had become their slaves, their servants, would become so many that they would be able to overthrow Egypt, that they'd take over. And so to keep them at bay, they said, you know what, we're going to make a rule. Every child that you have that's a male, we're going to want you to throw them in the Nile River. Wow, that's kind of harsh. But that's how they dealt with it. They said, you know what, we don't want you to become many, so we're going to have you kill your babies. We're not going to do it, but we want you to do it. Well, there were some Hebrew women that would make sure that they wouldn't have to do that. One of which was the mother of Moses. Verse 20 says, At this time, while this was going on, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. So Moses' mom heard this rule, hey, you've got to kill your, your, your male children, you've got to throw them in the river, and she said, I can't make myself do that. I'm a mom, I love my child, so I trust that God's going to take care of this child, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically build this little boat, an ark if you will, and I'm going to place him in the river. Still place him in the river, but I'm going to trust that wherever this river goes, wherever downstream this child goes, that God's going to protect him. And so Moses, we get his name because Pharaoh's daughter pulled her out, pulled him out of the river. And Moses, the, the name actually means through water. And so they pulled him out of the water, draw, drew him out of the water, and he was saved physically. And he was brought into the household of Pharaoh and he was raised in the household of Pharaoh and all of their wisdom and all their teaching. And so God had plans for Moses and he used the Pharaoh, to fulfill them. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, brought him up as her own, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Verse 23, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. I don't know what exactly happened, but it seems that later, as she... The Pharaoh's daughter had decided she was going to raise him. They called upon one of the Hebrew women to basically nurse this child. Guess who it ended up being? Moses' mom. So God is completely in control. They say that coincidence is when God decides to remain anonymous. 
coincidence in the Christian life is not the case. God's in control. And so when she, by faith, said, Lord, I trust you with my child and put him in the water, he brought her back to him. He brought him back to her. And so she, she basically got to nurse her own child, and it seems that he knew he was a Hebrew boy. You can imagine his mom nursing and just looking at that child and saying, you're not an Egyptian. You're, you're a Hebrew. You're God's child. And just reminding him that daily as she's feeding him, praying for him. And then letting him go and say, Lord, I trust him with you once again. We must do that with our children because God will be faithful. He's going to be more faithful than you and I ever could be. You know, I start to wonder sometimes, man, if I make a bad decision and something happens to me, what am I going to do with my, what, what am I, what's my child, what's my, my wife going to do? And I can do all the things to try and protect them. And I will. I'm going to do everything in my practical knowledge on how to protect them. But ultimately, every day when I walk out the door, I got to go, Lord, this is your daughter. And this is not my daughter, meaning Lucy. I'm talking about Kelly. He's God's daughter. But Lucy is his daughter too. So Lord, I trust you. I trust you to take care of them because I can't always be there for them. So Moses' mom did that. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, verse 24, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them, meaning two Hebrews, as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed Moses away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? See, Moses didn't think anybody saw that, but they did. And so they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And then as this saying, at, the, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So for a time, it seems that Moses recognized he was a Hebrew boy, and so he went out to see his people. Remember, they didn't dwell right there in Egypt. They dwelled in a fertile land called the land of Goshen. Not the Atlantic Ocean, but the land of Goshen. I always hear that, and I have to say that. But what happened is he came to his people. He saw that one of his own people was being wronged by an Egyptian, and so he was righteously angry, like we like to call it, he decided, I'll take matters into my own hands. And by the end of it, he ended up rising up and killing this Egyptian. Now, is that the way that God's called us to deal with our enemies? It doesn't seem that was so, because murder seems to be on the top ten list of things not to do. So that's why I said earlier, Moses was a murderer. Many people don't remember that. Even God, when he expresses in different scriptures, he doesn't recognize Moses as, as a murderer. He looks at him as a man of faith. But you've got to remember where you came from. We can be men and women of faith all we want, but we started somewhere and, and we needed saving. And so God used Moses, but it seems that when he was found out to be a murderer, he realized that he was not doing things God's way and he fled. He's like, I've got to get out of here. They know I'm a murderer and they're going to have me put to death for doing it. So he went to the land of Midian for the time. And... Uh, Verse 30 says, When forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. 
And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. He realized that this place, that God was revealing himself to him, he's getting ready to tell him, hey, this is what I want to use you for. But before Moses could be used mightily, even though he was large in his own eyes, he thought he was, pretty, he was something special being raised in the Pharaoh's house. Before he could ever be used by God, he had to be broken first. And so God allowed him to fail miserably and murder this man. He fled to the, to the desert and he got what I call his backside of the desert degree. He spent 40 more years in the wilderness. He had a family, he had children. But during that time, God showed him, I want to use you, but you got to be humble first. So when God revealed himself to Moses, it seems that Moses trembled and feared the Lord. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Again, there was nothing special about the bush. There was nothing special about the dirt he was standing on. The only thing holy about that place is that that's where God decided to meet Moses. So then the Lord said, verse 34, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. This is the Lord speaking. I've seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So Stephen gives this long Old Testament story and he says, this Moses, who you guys claim to be the greatest now, Back when he came to you as a mouthpiece that God was going to speak to you through, when he came to you at first, you rejected him. But then when he went away for 40 years and came back, then you received him. So he's showing this pattern in Israel's history. You think that all these people are great now, but when God sent them to you initially, you hated them. You would not listen to them. Moses came back to you. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. Just like Jesus, he's getting ready to make this point at the end of his message here. Jesus came to us just before you killed him, spent his whole life serving. The last three years, he revealed himself to the nation of Israel by signs and wonders. He delivered people from slavery, from bondage, from blindness, from death, and you rejected him. But when Jesus comes back the second time, you'll recognize him for who he is. So verse 37 this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Even Moses in the Old Testament prophesied of a, a Savior, a Messiah, that God would send to the nation of Israel to be their Savior. This Moses that you hold in such high regard in your nation's history, even he testified that God was going to send a deliverer that was greater than him. And so, verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, 
meaning when he went up on the Mount Sinai and he received the, the commandments that God gave him, even the measurements of the tabernacle that they would build and worship him in. He received the oracles from the Lord, whom our fathers, verse 39, would not obey, but they rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Now, I don't know if you guys have read the book of Numbers, but during the time of Numbers, after Moses had delivered them by miraculous signs and brought them out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea, really under it, if you will, because God removed the water. They passed through it. They were saved by water, kind of like baptism. And as they were brought into the wilderness, they were supposed to pass through the wilderness and get to the land of Canaan that God was going to give them. He promised it to Abraham way back in Genesis. And as they were getting ready to come into the land, they started looking back to Egypt going, man, we're in the desert. How are we going to get food here? How are we going to be preserved? How are we ever going to make it? Have you brought us out here, Moses, just to die? And you can imagine leaving a land of plenty where there's a a fertile crescent right around the the river Nile. They always depended upon the Nile and they had these great fertile crops in the land of Goshen. And as they came out, they go into the desert and they're like, how are we going to grow all these leeks and onions? And that's what the enemy likes to do to us. God delivers us out of sin and bondage. And what we like to do, and we don't think about it this way, is we look back to how good we thought we had it. We don't remember all the consequences of our sin. We only remember the pleasure of sin. That's only short term. And we look back and we go, man, it was just so much better in the land of Egypt. And the Lord says, but I have greater for you over that hill. And so because of their disobedience and their not liking what God had provided for them, because he was giving them food daily in the desert, miraculously, every morning, they would wake up and there would be this fine powder on the ground. And when they would gather it all together, they could make bread out of it. It was called manna. And we despise the manna, the bread from heaven that God gives us. He calls it bread from heaven. And you know what the nation of Israel called it? They called it manna, which in Hebrew just means, what is it? You know, you know, you think about it this way. If somebody ever makes you a nice meal and you get to their house, you're like, I've never had this before. What is it? You know, what is this thing? This is not my favorite. What is that? And so that's what they did. They despised what God provided for them. And eventually what they said to Moses was, give us quail or something. Give us some meat. We want meat. We don't want this bread. And so the Lord said, hey, Moses, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I'm going to give them all the quail they want. And it says there that when they got the quail that they wanted, that they ate it until they were sick as dogs. It was coming out of their ears. It was so much. They just couldn't stand it anymore. And so God resumed giving them the bread from heaven that would bring them through. It had all the nutrients they would need. And so uh, I think of it like a graham cracker. It's been described as like this, uh, this seed uh, mixture with flour, kind of like a graham cracker. It's, it's sweet to the taste, and it's, it's sustaining, it's filling. Uh, anyway, so um, this is he who they rejected would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, verse 39, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for the, this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him because he was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days receiving the word from the Lord. And as he was up there, the people started to go, well, he must be dead, so let's find out something. We need to worship the God that's delivered us. And so they said, make for us, Aaron, 
take all these gold earrings we have, melt them down, and make for us something we can worship. Because we've got to worship something. And man always desires to worship something. And so they found something to worship because they were used to living in Egypt for so long and they watched the gods that they worshiped, the idols. And so Aaron made them a calf. And they made a calf in those days, verse 41, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. And he says there in verse 42, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So throughout the nation's history, when they didn't worship God, they found something else to worship. He said, even during that time, you decided you were going to worship Moloch. And every time you see that name come up, they were worshiping this God that literally had, he was made out of uh, a metal, and they would put his hands out, and it, it was kind of molded like that so that they would heat up the hands of this God and they would place their children and offer them on this until they basically burned to death on the hands of Molech. Forsaking their God, they started worshiping this other God that required of them the life of their children. And so they always sacrificed to the God of success their own, chil- success, their own children. And so they, they gave themselves over. So anyway, he's showing them, the nation of Israel, Stephen is, He's showing them how unfaithful they have been throughout their history, even though they think themselves highly. But he's showing them, look, you've been unfaithful all these times, and God's continued to bless you. Why don't you hear him and turn back to him? So verse 44, he's going to talk about the tabernacle. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it, in turn, they built it and also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. In other words, you guys kind of, you see a problem with me saying anything wrong about the temple, but the temple is just a place where God dwells. Before it wasn't a temple. What did you do before you had a temple? Well, you worshiped God in the tabernacle that he had given a pattern for. And you even brought it into the land of Canaan and you worshiped him in that. The temple was never supposed to be, the tabernacle was never fixed in one place. It was always with the people. So if God said move, they packed up the tent, they rolled it up. The Levites all carried certain pieces inside of the temple or the tabernacle and it was mobile. God's not a God of one area or another. He's everywhere. But when he moves, he goes with his people. He takes them with him. And the same is true for you and I. We like to think of certain destinations or certain places as where God speaks to us. And no doubt we may have those places, those Ebenezers, maybe a rock of remembrance. Maybe it's a a place that you talked to somebody one time and God really used that conversation. Maybe it's a, a person and you go to their house and it's just a place of sanctuary for you. But God goes with us wherever we go. He's with us everywhere And we are his temple. I talked about that last week. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God's not the God of one place. He's not the God of just the temple. When God instituted a place of worship, the tabernacle, he made it mobile. And so he tells them, you even took it into the land of Canaan when Joshua led you across the Jordan. He went with you. 
He went before you. They even carried the, the Ark of the Covenant. It went across the water before they ever did. He led them into the land to possess it. So, verse 47, But Solomon built a house. However, even Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, the most, he said, The Most High God does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet had said, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So, He's basically saying God is not a God of one place or another. He's the God of all creation. Earth is just his footstool. We think about all that God has created and we like to think about it as just this earth, but he's created the cosmos. You can't even fathom how big the, the, um, the galaxy is. We're just in one little corner of it that God saw fit to consider. And so he's placed you and I here. But then he says in verse 51, he kind of draws all the conclusions. He brings all these Old Testament references to a close and he kind of gets to the, uh, to the end of the road where the rubber meets the road and he says, to, imagine who he's talking to before I read this. He's talking to the Israel's national leaders. He's talking to the high priest. He's getting ready to say something pretty bold. Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always... Underline that. Always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels. God miraculously gave you the law, and you've not kept it. Now this is a pretty big indictment. See, this trial is actually about we see it as Stephen being put on trial, but Stephen's twisted it, and now the trial is really, it's not on Stephen, it's on the religious leaders. And what we're going to see is that as Stephen has given this testimony, this, this is going to lead way to more persecution. Stephen's going to be the first of many martyrs. But as this opposition and this persecution happens, what's going to happen is the pattern we saw in the beginning of Acts, that God would spread his light, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the nation of Israel, specifically starting in Jerusalem, that it would spread because persecution will spread the people out. Basically what happens is because of persecution, all these people start to fear being persecuted, and so they, go, they, they run away from the persecution. But as they run away, they go to other areas like Judea, which was the overall area, to Samaria, which was a place they would never go, because they needed refuge. And as they had refuge in those places, they would share the testimony and what Jesus Christ did and other people would get saved. And so the gospel spread. And later we'll see in the book of Acts that it will spread even past all these nations and into the outermost reaches of the world. Paul will eventually take the gospel all, all the way to Caesar in Rome. And so this persecution that starts is kind of just going to be the, the tip of the iceberg. But as he has said these pretty harsh and bold things to the nation or to the nation's leaders there, I wanted to point out what he has been saying to them. He says to them, You stubborn and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He says, Just like your fathers, you too always resist the Holy Spirit. So if you got your Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter two. 
where Paul kind of draws some conclusions about circumcision. Circumcision was an outward sign that God gave them, not to prove their righteousness to Him, but as a way to remember that they were God's and not their own. But Paul's going to point out in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, He says, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision, meaning that he's not done this outward act, will it not be counted as circumcision? (laughs) This is kind of confusing, I know, but will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and your circumcision and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he who is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcised that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew. Let me start over on that. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Let me sum that up, because Paul writes in these law terms. It's like reading statutes in a constitution. It kind of gets muddled up because it's so technical. But what he's saying is, you're not God's. You're not God's chosen people to use just because you do these outward things that people see. Just because you're obedient outwardly doesn't mean that you surrender to God inwardly. And oftentimes what we think is if I do this, 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 and this, then I'll be saved. But what God's showing is that Stephen's going, look, you guys are doing all the right stuff on the outside, but you keep killing God's messengers to you, which proves that inwardly you're not surrendered to God. You're not ready to receive the message He has for you. So be careful. You need to repent and turn back to Him. And then He says another thing. Every time God sent messengers to you, the prophets, you've persecuted them, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Every time a prophet said that God's going to send a deliverer to you, they basically killed them. And now you've become the betrayers and the murderers of the just one, Jesus. Every time there's this testimony, they always point out the fact, especially to the nation leaders in Israel, you killed Jesus and he was the Messiah. And then your nation has received the law of God. That's good. God has blessed you, but you have not kept the law. It's one thing to know how to do what is good. It's another thing to actually do it. We like to think that if we know what's good, then we are good. But God says, why do you say that you love me and do not do the things that I command? And so they boasted in the fact that God had chose them, but they were not obeying him. We have to be careful about that because we can be so built up in head knowledge about God, recognizing who he is and what he's done and not be uh, outwardly obedient to him uh, for the right reasons. So verse 54, the result, and we'll close. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. One translation says, when they heard these things, they were absolutely furious. They were upset. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice. They made a bunch of noise. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. I, I picture them as a little child going, la, 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 I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything. They wanted to shut him out because they knew what he said was true, but they were not going to receive it. And so because they didn't receive his message, you'll notice that it doesn't go well for him. Although at the same time, it went very well for him. Because we're going to see that though he died, he's going to get to go be with the Lord. He didn't have to suffer through anything else. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. And with one accord, they ran towards him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. Now we'll recognize later that this Saul is in fact the Apostle Paul that will basically do some mighty deeds later. But at this point, he's uh, basically holding the coats of all that didn't want to get their clothes dirty while they were putting Stephen to death with rocks. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So they killed him because they didn't like his message. That's what we oftentimes do when God's trying to show us something that might hurt us a little bit because we need to repent. We kill the messenger. We've got to be careful of that. But he was speaking what God had given him to speak. And I know that because in verse 55, we just read, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was testifying of Jesus. And so I think it would be very easy for many people to say, well, you know, Stephen didn't have to be so bold. He didn't have to really go that hard for the Lord. Why didn't he just dial it back a little bit, kind of water down the truth a little bit. Maybe they would have heard it and not killed him. But I would say to you many times, people won't receive it whether you're bold or not. And Stephen was in fact fulfilling his calling here. And we know that because of the way that he died. He died with grace. He died, as he was dying, he was praying for his enemies. Notice the things that he says there. He says, uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember what Jesus prayed as he was being killed on the cross. Lord, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then what else does he say here that Jesus had said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He was praying for those who were presently killing him with rocks. Now I think about murder, and I've always, for me, stoning's always been one of those things where I'm like, seriously? How many rocks? I couldn't throw one. I don't know that I could. To throw a rock at somebody and try to kill them with it. It's, it's so brutal. It's agonizing. You have to watch it. You have to look at your target to hit it. And so to look at someone and to stone them, they were very violently angry towards him. And notice also, they yelled loudly and they covered the ears so they wouldn't have to listen to him any longer. They wanted to shut him up. And they killed him outside of the city. Just like Jesus had been led outside of the city to be crucified. Now, I also want you to remember that one time when Jesus read from the Old Testament, he read from Isaiah. He says, the Lord has sent me to set captives free, to proclaim the year of salvation of the Lord. And as he read that, he closed the book and he told them, today in your hearing, you're seeing this fulfilled. He's basically saying, I'm that Messiah. And what they did to Jesus is they pushed him to the edge of a cliff outside the city 
and they tried to push him off. But because it wasn't his time to die yet, he had somehow escaped from the crowd as they were trying to kill him. So this is what they wanted to do to Jesus too when he proclaimed the truth from the Old Testament. But the other thing I want to point out is that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, if you ever go read there, it talks about the death of the believer. Stephen did not die, he fell asleep. Because a Christian goes to be with Jesus when he leaves the earth, and he doesn't die in the sense that a non-Christian does. Death, eternal death, is to be separated from God. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present for the with the Lord for the believer. And then in John chapter 11, verse 25, verse through 26, Jesus also says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's great comfort for the believer. So there are many who might say that if Stephen might have just dialed it back just a little bit, Perhaps he would not have been stoned to death by these men. But I would say to them, until you have lived a life that's fully surrendered to following Jesus and doing whatever he gives you to do, um, they will have never truly and fully lived their lives like Stephen did. Stephen, though he died early in life, many would say, he lived a full and an abundant life, a life that counted. Stephen's service, his testimony, and his death all reflect the service, the testimony, and the death of His Savior. May we have the same testimony at the end of our lives. May we die daily, maybe not physically. May we die to ourselves so that other people might see the character and the attributes of our Savior. May we proclaim His death in the way that we live. And may He get the glory. Lord Jesus, thank You for the testimony of Stephen. Thank you that though it seems like he died for no apparent reason, that we're going to get to see next week that his testimony had a great impact on someone by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was killing your saints. And yet, seeing Stephen die had an eternal impact on the way that Paul is going to live the rest of his life. And no doubt, he was preparing him so that the day you would knock Paul off of his horse that uh, he would be humbled and be softened so that he could receive you and, and want to know more about you. So Lord, give us the heart of Stephen. Help us to be willing to share the truth with people, even though it might mean that we might be persecuted or uh, you know, outwardly mocked. Um, Lord, we oftentimes really don't have to suffer death for proclaiming your name, for proclaiming you as our Savior. But there are people all around the world that just like Stephen here, give up their life to surrender to you and to proclaim your name. Just this week, I think there was a, a girl, eight months pregnant, and she's got the death penalty on her head because she will not denounce her Savior Jesus in an Islamic country. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are around the world that are threatened daily in their lives. Um, Lord, give them strength to continue to proclaim your name and to not be ashamed. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of life and the resurrection, and it's salvation to all those who hear it. So Lord, help us not to be ashamed, but to completely surrender to you, so that when the day of trial comes, uh, we can give you glory, and you can uh, continue to uh, grow us in our trust in you. 
So Lord, use us and give us a testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.